You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today I talked to Mauro Porcini, who is PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer. Prior to that, he was the first chief design officer at 3M. And he's got a new book. It's called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with Mauro Puccini, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so the, the first line in the introduction of your new, new book is, quote, innovation is an act of love, or at least it should be, end quote. And I think some folks would be surprised that you anchor this book on love and loving. So what, why'd you do that? Uh, it's something I realized later in life. You know, I studied design and then then when I was studying design, I realized that design was much more than uh, the meaning we usually give to the word design. It was actually innovation. It was all about understanding people, their needs, their wants, their frustrations and their dreams and creating solutions for them. It could be a product, it could be a service, it could be a brand, it could be an experience. But at the end of the day, That's what designers and innovators do. You create something meaningful for people when they need or desire that thing. Then if you take it to the next level, if you really understand the meaning of uh, something like this, in the act of creating that solution, if you do it right, if you do it in a sincere and authentic way, essentially by definition, you care the people you're serving. You are driven by that idea of love, 
of deeply caring for the people uh, that you design for, because you really want to make sure that you can offer them the best possible solution, the best possible product, the best possible brand. And that's what drives you. To make money then is a secondary priority. But the first, first thing that moves you is to create something, create something extraordinary for them. This is what real innovators do. They are driven first by the idea of creating something unbelievable for the world. And then they're like, okay, let's see how I'm going to make money with it. There is a different approach, obviously. You can start with, I want to be rich. I want to grow my company. I want to build a company. I need to figure out how to do it. And there have been cases in history, obviously, of successful people even in doing that. But the truth is that today, in a world where the barriers to entry of many companies and brands established out there in the world, in different kinds of industries, those barriers to entries are crumbling down under the winds of globalization, new technologies, e-commerce, social media. Well, either you, you have a culture inside your company uh, that is all about loving people. It's all about creating something extraordinary for them. It's all about loving what you do, by the way. That's another dimension of the love. And it's all about loving the people around you so that you you realize that it's not just your job, but it's something you need to do collectively with your teams, with everybody that surrounds you, with your customers, with your partners. The more you build that kind of culture of authentic love, the more you will have a competitive advantage over any other organization that doesn't have that kind of culture. Today is more necessary than ever because of the competitive pressure that the landscape, the environment, the society, and the business world we live in uh, has created. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the future of work skills, they are all the things that are the most human, you know, storytelling and creativity and problem solving. And one of the things that, as I was reading your book, we live in such different worlds, but not really because at Second City, our actors make something out of nothing. They write their shows in front of audiences. They improvise. They have to constantly, um, we, we rapid prototype in front of our, our scenes and our jokes and our ideas and our characters in front of audiences. And that connection, I, I often love the phrase, the shortest distance between two people is a laugh because it, you, you know, if you don't get the laugh, it's not successful here. And it seems to me that as, as a designer, the work you do is also highly empathetic. And you also talk, talk about the joy and, and laughter and how important that is to you. Well, I think there are so many common points between acting and designing. If I think about my, my past, my childhood, um, I had two passions, two big passions. This is what I wanted to be when I was growing up. One was writing to be an author. And the other passion was art. I was good at drawing and, and, and painting and I wanted to be an artist. I ended up becoming a designer mostly for practical reasons. I needed to uh, um, do a university that will give me the possibility to find a very concrete job very quickly um, because I didn't have the means. My family didn't have the means to support me financially if, if that didn't happen. And so that's why I decided to do design. And then when I was doing, when I started, I realized that actually it was a dream job, you know, something that I always uh, loved to do, but I didn't know there was a university that will teach you that. And there you could have a career, you could have a job in that kind of field. And then 
while I was studying design and then when I started to work in the world of design, I found a way to write about what I was doing. So to somehow, you know, again, uh, uh, exercise the passion I was having of writing. And then I found myself very early on on stage speaking about what I was doing and somehow performing in on the stage. You know, when I go on stage, I use my body, I use my facial expressions. I, I try to captivate the audience, to engage the audience with much more than my content. I use any kind of code, visual code that I can, starting with my own body to engage with them. So I took a very large detour to then make the point I wanted to make. Essentially, what I realized later in life, that what I really loved since I was a child was to touch the heart of people. And you have different ways to do it. It could be through a piece of art. It could be through something that you write, is a book, is an article. It could be through a performance on stage. And in my case, is the performance of a speaker. But in your case, is the performance of an actor. Uh, it could be uh, in uh, so many different dimensions, uh, different media, different platforms. But at the end of the day, there is always one common theme. Deeply understanding people, human beings, caring about them because the care and the love gives you the possibility to understand them at levels that you would understand them if you didn't have that kind of passion and love and care. And then storytell something, create something that tells that kind of story. And then again, it could be a performance, a second city, it could be a product, it could be a book, it could be anything. This, we all do the same thing. We want to touch the life of people and create some form of value in their life. It could be a laugh in a moment. It could be convenience. It could be safety. It could be anything. But we're all here to create value for the life of people in a very authentic way. And, and we're lucky because while doing that, we also make money. We have a job. They pay for, our, you know, they pay, they pay us for doing that. This is literally the topic of conversation of therapy last night. I was talking to my therapist <laughs> about the the joy of um um delight delighting other people and and then when you delight someone else you, it always comes back it always comes back it's it's always this sort of echo and there are two things two projects products that you created that have caused delight in my life uh and the first was actually when you joined PepsiCo they were attempting to refine a new and innovative soda fountain and i think that's an amazing story and that's something that like I, I literally have used that and my kids have and they love it. Um, but it, talk about what you walked in and what it was then and then what you needed to do to, you know, make it, you know, delightful. Even before I officially joined the company, um, Indra Nui, the CEO back then, and Bray Jackman, the president of Global Beverage, asked me to meet with the teams working on this super secret special project that was the, the design of this fountain. And back then, what was driving that team was essentially what, what, what competition was doing, what technology uh, was giving you the possibility to do. And so they were trying to do something that was great using technology that was perceived as to be the technology you needed to use to be innovative in that industry in the moment. And again, competing with a specific other entity uh, on that specific field. 
when we when I joined the company, uh, on one side, I realized that I was bringing to the table my knowledge, my know-how, my skills as a designer. But in the meantime, I had no clue of this industry. I never worked in my life in food and beverage. Uh, I was interacting with top executives in R&D, in marketing. They knew so much more than me in their field. But once again, so on one side, I wanted to be humble. I needed to be humble. It was not just, you know, because uh, it's something nice to do. It was also a way to protect myself because there were for sure things that I didn't understand and I didn't know. But on the other side, I knew what was necessary to do in innovation in general, in design-driven innovation in general. So while we were working on what the company was expecting me to do, what the team was expecting me to do on the styling and the form and function of the machine they were developing, behind the scenes, in secret, I started to challenge completely the assumptions of the project. I, 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 I asked the team if there was any insights on uh, what really the people who were serving wanted the customers being uh, the food service channel, the restaurants operators and all these people. And then all the way to the end users, the people using the machines. And, and, and I started to put together a series of insights, ideas uh, through some of the information they gave me, but mostly by talking directly to people. And I, started to talk with a series of R&D leaders and technologists and people that will give us some direction on what technology could do beyond what they were considering back then. And so long story short, we came up with an idea of redesigning completely the machine and actually not doing just one machine, but we need an entire portfolio of machines to serve all the different people that we were targeting. We came up with the idea of using existing technologies, modifying the valves and modifying few things to reduce the cost and give to people actually what they wanted without increasing cost and without using technologies that were not necessary for the specific goal. And then using the money we were saving there, investing them in something that was more relevant for the people we were serving, like bigger screens and a better interaction uh, with the user interface and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so this is what we came up with. And then at the point, the problem was, well, how do I present this to a team that's been working on for years, you know, right. in that direction? And so we were having all these reviews every month, actually weekly reviews with the CEO in Ranui and a committee of top executives of the company. So that day, here we are, we go reviewing all the different uh, ideas on the traditional concept. And then, uh, and then at the very end of the meeting, I take from my bag in a very, you know, very naturally, like if nothing was happening, this um, rendering of a line of products using a completely different kind of approach. And I share it with, uh, with Indra, with the team, telling them, well, you know, we're just playing with another idea and we're thinking this and, and everybody got excited by that idea. And the power of not just having the idea, but prototyping that idea. In the case was a render. We, you know, it could be, but it could have been a sketch. It could be a mock-up. It could be anything you want, but creating something that people could see 
could get excited about. And understanding the three dimensions of innovation, that is desirability, understanding what people want in depth, feasibility, that is the technology that you want to use to reach the desirability, and viability, how you make money or you're, you're going to make money with the system. This is what drove us in coming up with those kind of solutions. The power of prototyping, uh, the power of creating something around that idea is that essentially you excite people and, and you unlock sponsorship and support and, and they want you when they see something like this, they see what I call the shiny object. They want eventually you to work on it and take it to the next level. They get excited. And so this is what happened at the beginning of the project. Uh, and and what unlock uh, a different direction for the project, but then later on for the entire design organization in the company. This mix of respect, working with people, but then also questioning the status quo, questioning all assumptions, doing it in a cross-functional way, understanding all the different dimensions, and then identifying people that could sponsor the different approach. And then, I didn't mention it yet, taking people with you anyway at a certain point. You, you need to always balance, you know, disrupting, provoking, challenging, but then also understanding how to work with people and take them with you. If you just go in, you disrupt and you don't take people with you, sooner or later you will ba- burn all the bridges around you and you go nowhere, no matter how genius and, and, and visionary you are. There's a thing I think that people... I speak a lot of, at a lot of creativity conferences. I'm sure you do too. And this is a thing that people don't, I think, understand is the way that we can be really, really creative is, uh, within constraints, within a lot of constraints. And, um, and then, and then what that also requires is just a high tolerance of risk and, and, and failure because failure is going to happen along the way. And, and getting a team on board with that, I don't know that there's anything more powerful. If they, if everyone understands what the norms are and, and the constraints and they're willing to be creative, tolerate risk, willingness to fail and try again. Um, and it just feels to me from reading the book that that is, that's something you bring to every project you work on. Yeah. And look in the book, in the forward from the two CEOs of the company, Indra Nui back then and then Ramon LaGuarta today, both of them in a way or the other, they mentioned the fact that essentially they asked me to be disruptive, especially Ramon in his forward at the beginning, right away, he writes, you know, I, when I became CEO, I asked Mauro to be the disruptive thing, the one who was challenging the status quo and everything. So here you are, you are empowered to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. You have the sponsor of a sponsorship of a CEO behind you. I saw so many people in this situation where you go in a company, they tell you change everything, disrupt. You have my, you know, I have your back. And, and so many times I saw these people making the same mistake. They go in and they just disrupt by destroying. Yeah. And you don't, you know, and there is a difference between disrupting and destroying. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to disrupt, but bringing people with us. And there will be people that w- don't want to change. So the first step is to find what I call the co-conspirators, the people that do want to change. And usually they are one out of 10. There are not many, but they are there. They are there. We need to find them. I, <coughs> in PepsiCo, uh, what we did at the very beginning, uh, we map the uh, co-conspirators, so the people in the organization that could partner with us in changing the game, mm-hmm. with what we were calling the low-hanging fruits 
projects, you know, those projects where I could show value very quickly because speed is very important to show some form of incremental value quickly, mm-hmm. give you more credibility right away, give you also more peace of mind. It, it gives you the possibility to keep working on on the long term, on the real value for the company. So we map, you know, the people, the right people assigned to the right projects, and we started to work with them. And the um, the Spire Fontaine, the machine that you just mentioned, yeah. was one of those projects. Uh, the redesign of Pepsi, what we call Big Ball Blue, was another one. So there were a few projects that were identified very quickly. We, we build value there. But again, we did it by bringing people with us. Um, as an example, on that specific project, um, you know, these companies always have global organizations and local teams. So there is the local US team, the local Europe team, and so on and so forth. And often, you know, there is a tension between the two teams. You know, the, you have very senior marketing executives. Uh, they have their own agendas. They, they have their own uh, scorecards. They, they need to deliver value for the businesses. So often there is, you know, you, there is tension between the different agendas. By the way, a tension that is designed on purpose by the organization. Mm-hmm. But um, when we, when I came in and we designed Big Bo Blue, the, the new identity of Pepsi, um, I forced a collaboration between the US team and the global team that was not that spontaneous, was not that natural. But I did it because I knew that the two teams needed to work end in end together in delivering the specific project from the very beginning. And I knew it simply for one reason, because I made my mistakes in 3M in my previous company. Uh, and I realized in so many projects in those 10 years, when there was not this deep, deep partnership and collaboration, things were systematically not working out. Yeah. I mean, it was always like this. Uh, but again, sometimes you know what is you're supposed to do, but you don't find the right conditions, the right culture, the right people to make that thing happen. And, and, and you need to figure out how to find the right co-conspirators, the right partners to prove that actually that approach work. And when you have one proof point and then a second one and a third one, the more proof points, the more people we want to join you, the more proof points you will build. And when you arrive to a critical s- scale of proof points, then your life will be much easier. The company will realize that actually this is not just, you know, a, the trend of a moment is not a fad is something there to last can really create value for the company and will, will, you will move to a second phase that, that is the scale of scale up of this new culture within the organization with a set of new challenges that you need to face uh, in that phase. At the end of the book, um, you write, quote, is it possible to educate someone to become a unicorn, which is the, the sort of what we were talking about before? Can you train a unicorn? My reply is always the same. Yes and no, end quote. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. My wife, Anne, is a uh, tenured professor of comedy. She runs a, a, a uh, BA in comedy writing performance here in Chicago. And she's got a new book that uh, she's just about to send in to the publisher and it's called funnier. And it's based on when like dads will come to an open house and they'll say to her, are you going to make my son or daughter funny? And she goes, I can't make them funny. I can make them funnier. So the baseline might be, you know, that they're not going to end up being Tina Fey or Amy Poehler, but maybe they're going to be more fun at a party. And I think maybe that's where you're going with the, the, the unicorn thing, right? 
Well, yes, and I think it's a positive message for the world. I think in anything we do, we have two ingredients to play with, or two variables, maybe is a better definition. Uh, one variable is our natural talent. So you mentioned the unicorns. The unicorns are these ideal leaders, innovators, designers, what, whatever you want to call them, but this applies to an actor, to a musician, to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So the unicorns are these ideal innovators and leaders. They have 24 different characteristics. And we all we we have all of them when we're born. We have all of those characteristics. And those are, you know, is optimism, curiosity, is respect, is we have we have them all in 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 potential. You know, they are inside ourselves. Now we have some of them are naturally more developed than others. Mm-hmm. And so you have those kids that right away they make jokes all the time and everybody laugh and it's so natural you have those kids that they play soccer so well and tennis so well so some of us have characteristics more developed than others naturally but then no matter the talent you have if you don't practice them if you don't invest in them if you don't spend time and energy to develop them you will never, you, uh, probably you will perform in a, a worse way than somebody with less natural talent than instead has been practicing it. This is true. Uh, there is um, uh, the inventor of the in, um, IQ. Uh, I never remember his name, unfortunately, but he used to say exactly this, even for the IQ, you can be born with a certain IQ, you know, that there is a number associated to your IQ, but you may die with a different IQ or uh, with an IQ that is inferior to somebody was born with a lower IQ. If you don't practice, if you don't train, and if somebody else instead born with a lower IQ has been practicing and training and, and growing during his life. So even for the IQ, so this is true for everything else. We can improve. We need to invest time. And maybe, you know, if I don't have a supernatural talent for soccer, I'm not going to become Ronaldo, Messi or Maradona, but maybe I arrive to play, you know, in premier league anyway, if I have Mm -hmm. a talent good enough, or even if I'm not there, I'm going to do something decent with the talent that I have. If I have, the passion for that specific dimension. But there is another point that I think is important in the book. We need to be aware of what are the talents that are relevant for us. And often we are not because nobody ever told us about those talents. So let's say, you know, in the specific case of the book, looking back at my journey, I realized that one of the reasons why I am where I am today and by the way, it's not just the position that I have, but it's also the fact that I'm happy right. in my job and in life. So that's yeah. really, you know, yeah. my achievement, being happy. But, you know, the position is, or anyway, also something I'm sure a lot of people would love to have as well. So even for that, there have been a series of things that happen in my life, behaviors, way of thinking, have been critical for me to get where I am. For instance, the power of curiosity, the power of kindness, kindness, 
You know, in companies, often you hear that kindness is a weakness, that is a vulnerability. And instead, for me, it's been so, so important to grow where I am today, the power of optimism. And so what I'm trying to say is, if nobody tells a kid, optimism is important, curiosity is important, um, kindness is important, respect is important, uh, diversity is important, a variety of different things are important there is a lower probability that this kid will practice those qualities because is he or she is going to be completely unaware of the importance of those qualities. So if you have them natural or naturally, or if your um, uh, family value them, or if your teachers at school completely randomly by coincidence value them or embody them, then you will practice them and you will grow. But if for bad luck, you're surrounded by people that are exactly the opposite. You may actually take even, you know, eventually you have some of them inside, but you may take them down because you think that they're not good. Kindness is a perfect example. How many people are eventually kind inside, but they grow up in very tough environments, families, you know, close communities and work, and they become tough. They become bad, you know, bad eventually, the opposite of kindness, even though naturally they were kind because nobody ever told them how important it is kindness actually in the journey of life. So that's why, you know, in this book, for me, there is a purpose that transcends business, PepsiCo, Mauro, anything. Is this idea of spreading the idea about the power of love that synthesizes it all, but the power of those 24 different characteristics that are important for society. Because if we have people practicing those kind of characteristics, we will live in a better society with less conflict, with less wars, and, you know, a better society. But because this is not enough, you know, people preaching and preaching, you know, good values, uh, we have them out there and, Often they're not, you know, heard and listened to. Mm-hmm. The, the, the other point of the book is that today to be competitive, competitive also in business, to have a business that is successful, you need to practice those values. You need to practice those kind of characteristics more than in the past, because we live in a world where the competitive Pressure in any field, by the way. This is true for music. This is true, yeah. true for creation of content and for acting. This is true for any kind of business. You know, we democratize access to the creation of things. Could be content, could be product, could be brands and companies. And so either you create something extraordinary and you do it constantly, all the time and quickly or somebody else will do it on your behalf. And therefore, you need all these characteristics to have the kind of competitive edge, both as a human being and as a company entity of any kind. I think that's, that's also something that people mistake when they, when we talk about culture and, and, um, uh, we interviewed, uh, uh, someone for the podcast who talked about culture is happening at your business, whether you want it to or not. Like, they, they, like you can do nothing and that will, that will, there's, there's, so the culture is there and it's, and this is the, where the tough stuff exists. And I just, I wish we had a better word than soft skills because that's what you're talking about. And those are the hard, you know, in many ways, the hardest skills of all. Um, and it, it's, it's, 
I don't know. I I'm, I have a great deal of hope because I like your book and there's been a, a lot of uh, business schools talk about this now that no meaning purpose. These things are really important. You're not going to hold on to your talent if they don't have a sense of belonging at your, at, at your place of work. And, and it's, 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 gonna be, it's such a competitive landscape for talent, you know, as, as going forward. Um, okay. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I have a few. Mm-hmm. Um, the one probably that I talk about also in the book is um, when <coughs> I was 20, I was 19 probably. Yeah, I was 18 or 19. I was in Varese in my hometown and I'm in this bus and I'm going to, it was lunchtime and I was going home to get my bag to go to practice for soccer. And I was playing soccer semi-pro. So it was like a job. They would pay me. You wouldn't miss one practice and we're practicing every day. So here I am. And I received this call from a friend of mine from high school telling me that, uh, there was a very famous designer at her house. Somebody we talked about a few months earlier, an, an icon in the design world back then. His name is Stefano Marzano. He was the head of design of Philips. He's Italian, but he was living in Holland. So the fact that he was in Varese, not even in Milan, in a small town there, available eventually to me, was a miracle. But still, you, you receive this call, and the first thing that came to my mind, probably not, not even, you know, I didn't even rationalize it. It was in my guts was, well, I go to the house of these adults because I was going to the house of the parents of my friend. I was 18, 19. I go to their house, the people that I don't know. And then I meet this very senior design leader. I just started to study design. I have nothing to tell this guy. I just admire him. But what do I do? You know, I go there. I'm going to make it full of myself. And, and so you have all these irrational, very emotional reactions. They make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And often when we have those kind of situations, we find even sometimes, you know, in a, in an unconscious way, all kind of alibi, all kind of reasons and excuses not to do things, not right. to act. Mm-hmm. And so I had plenty of reasons that day not to act. I needed to go to soccer practice. It's like if you receive a call in the morning and they tell you, oh, come to meet this interesting person. You're like, well, but I need to go to work, right? You Uh don't just keep work for that. So it was that kind of situation. But something, so I had all the reasons to say no, but then something instead in my guts, literally like the butterflies in your stomach, you know, made me just say yes. And I, of course, I have nothing to do. I'll be there. And I remember literally walking and running to this place for miles Mm -hmm. uh, to arrive there on time. And then I entered that, that house and, and, and that apartment and literally I had no clue what to say. It was very embarrassing at the beginning. And then everything flowed very natural. You know, and I don't even remember the conversation at all. It was many years ago, 28 years ago. Um, but I remember the feeling. I remember, uh, that until that point, I saw this famous designer for what he did in the world. And so the products that he delivered in the world that day, I saw the how. I could touch the how. I could touch his passion, his love. He was talking like a kid 
you know, because of the enthusiasm he had for what he was doing and enthusiasm very similar to the one of my parents for what they do, you know, when they paint and when they write, the difference was that they do it for themselves on their own. And they're so happy and satisfied for that. The guy for the first time, it was somebody with that same level of passion of my parents, but apply to a business and, mm-hmm. and, and showing me that you could build a business and do something great in the business world by applying that kind of passion and love. And that really, really was a sliding door. It changed my life because then I started to stalk him. <laughs> I, I, but, but in a very beautiful and naive and romantic way, I, back then internet was just starting, essentially didn't really exist. Uh, and, and so I, and, and I was fresh of high school and in high school, I studied philosophy and I love the idea of these masters, these maestri of philosophers writing to their discepoli, to their students. And we know a lot of the history of philosophy. I mean, the ancient philosophy through the exchange of the master with the student, you know, what they were writing to each other. This is, you know, the philosophy of, 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 of many of the ancient philosophers. And so, driven by that kind of fire i was like yes i can do the same with stefano marzano so i wrote him letters you know with a pen and a piece of paper about design and how design could change the world and all my ideas and and i wrote him two or three letters i don't remember in the in in a couple of years he never answered to to any of those uh, letters but one day he decided to do something that was much more important for uh, for me and much more meaningful in my life. Uh, he sent me two books uh, that he published with Philips um, and he had them in Italian, but he decided to send them in English to me. And the reason is that I didn't speak a word of English. I, mm-hmm. When I met him the first time, he, he, I told him, well, one day I would love to work for you in Philips. And he told me, well, do you speak English? And I was like, no, I don't. I studied French at school. And he told me, well, if you don't speak English, it's going to be very hard to work for a, mm-hmm. you know, for a corporation like this one. But I, you know, nobody back then in my family, in my, you know, in my close community was really pushing me to study English. It was, you could have a wonderful career in Italy without speaking the language. Again, it was pre-social media, pre-internet. And so I find, and so the guy told me this, but. I didn't do anything to change that. I was going to university. I was playing soccer semi-pro. My days were totally full. I didn't have a penny to go abroad and learn the language. And so I didn't do, I didn't act on that. Two years later, he sent me these books and he wrote me at the beginning of one of the two books. I'm sending them in English to you because you need to learn English if you ever want to work with us. That thing, the little act of kindness changed my life because that was the final push to decide to apply for a scholarship in Dublin uh, to go study design because I was not going, I didn't have the luxury to go study the language, to go study design for one year in an exchange program in a language that I didn't speak, that I didn't know. So imagine how complex it was, but I did it. And today I'm speaking in English with you and I lead design. I've been leading design for 20 years in multi, in America, multinational corporations, because that day, instead of staying in my comfort zone and going practice in soccer, I decided to say yes and go to that meeting. 
I love that story. Uh, the book is called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People. Mauro Percini, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Getting the Yes Hand podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive